Nothing could be more noble for us to think about and to spend our time and our hours uh, cogitating on and sharpening our view of the triune God. So this is a good place to be. I'm glad that you're here, and we want to jump into it after a word of prayer. So pray with me, please. God, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to not only have the uh, eternal benefit of knowing you, that allows us uh, clearance from our sin, a release from the penalty of all that we've ever done that has been uh, that has fallen short of your glory and transgressed your law. But God, we have the, the privilege, as the writers of all the traditional catechisms have put it, to enjoy you by knowing who you are, to enjoy you forever. We want to begin that process now and begin to unclutter our thinking with false ideas as to who you are, and we want to rightly understand the triune nature of the holy God of the Bible, the perfect, infinite fellowship that didn't need us, didn't need angels, and yet blessed angels and blessed us by giving us the opportunity to know you, to relate to you as intellect, emotion, and will, as people who reflect your image and your constitution. And for that, we're grateful. As imperfect as we are, God, we want to understand you better. We want to think more deeply about the things that you have revealed to us about yourselves, about yourself. And as Deuteronomy says, those are ours to know and to pass on to our children forever. And while there's much mystery, as we'll look at some tonight, we understand that there are emphatic statements that we can grasp and understand and we can hold on to and begin to, in our own thinking, have our thoughts about you shape who we are, what we value, what we think is important, even the decisions that we make in everyday life. So God, we really do want to... um, commend our church, I do, for meeting together and assembling together, taking meals together. Nothing could be more biblical than that. And so thanks for the opportunity to do that, for all the effort that goes into it, and even all the pain that comes with it, Uh, the difficulties sometimes in relationships and misunderstandings and all of those things help us to see that as effort that is, uh, is well spent and that that difficulty is well worth it. So God, give us a real sense of, of advance and forward and, and not of retreat and, and seclusion. So God, I just pray that you would be honored by our thoughts tonight as we uh, dig into your word once again to think clearly about the third person of the Godhead and make it uh, a time that's not only clear and, and cogent, but let it be a time that is uh, uh, something that, that resonates and continues to affect our, our thoughts uh, well into tomorrow and the next day. And even some of these statements that are made that are biblical summaries and crystallizations of your word, may they be with us for years and decades as we uh, contemplate, uh, maybe with more clarity than we've ever had before, who you are and the interactions as we look at tonight between the persons of the Godhead. So thank you, God, for your revealed word. Let us understand it. May your spirit enlighten us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust you got the worksheet, and when you did, we're going to look at the relationship between the second person of the Godhead and the third person, and I want to begin just by jumping into it, thinking through the incarnation, not from the perspective of Christology, but from the perspective of pneumatology. So let's think about the Holy Spirit and the incarnation. Incarnation. Carne came to us from Latin and made it into Spanish, Greek word sarke. These, these ideas are nothing other than being uh, enwrapped in in flesh. That's all we're talking about. When the second person of the Godhead who exists as spirit, just like the father and just like the third person of the Godhead puts on flesh, we want to look at that uh, relationship and the activity of the Holy Spirit in that regard. So up on the screen, I put a, a couple of verses that will give us all that we really have to go on, which may not seem to be enough, but the implications are sweeping. So we want to think them through afresh. Matthew chapter one, verse 18, it's up on the screen. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, she's engaged, 
before they came together. That's a very clear statement about their relationship. There was no sexual relationship. She was found to be with child. Now, here's the phrase, from the Holy Spirit. That's all we get in Matthew. It's all we get to understand it. But clearly, the identification, the agency here is credited to the Spirit. Look up here now at Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. Mary says to the angel, when she's told she's going to have the Messiah, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Again, that's very clear and stated emphatically. This is not a a normal birth. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the description. That's the phrase that we get. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Some parallelism there in that statement. And therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, set apart, the Son of God. So in the two passages that we have regarding what happened in this teenager's body, it's described in both texts, in Luke and in Matthew, as being by the Holy Spirit. So let's jot that down, letter A. The child is by, and here's the best we can do, by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, I get asked about this periodically, and I suppose you've wondered about it and thought about it. You know, what, what actually happened? Was there an insertion of a, a, a complete baby? Were there 23 chromosomes from God that were instantaneously created? Uh, you know, was this a child that looked like Mary? Did it share the characteristics of Mary? You know, those are all speculative. I mean, it's speculative theology to give our thoughts to that. And it's interesting. But I thought when we think through that, we should uh, quote Philip Melanchthon, who some of you have studied in the adult Sunday school class, and he's no slouch on theology, as you know, very grateful for men like this who have the brains to do the work of real deep and esoteric theology, and yet they make statements like this, we do better to adore the mysteries of deity than to investigate them. Now, he is certainly known for investigating the mysteries of theology. He's making a comparison here, though. What's more important is that we recognize the value of it, that we adore it, that we worship God for who he is. To know Christ he says, means to know his benefits, not as the scholastics teach. Now, the the reformers were coming out of a long period in the medieval church of scholasticism, and that was just nothing more without 10 hours a day in front of a screen. They would sit there and, and endlessly cogitate on every aspect of theology and try and find some expression for every imaginative thought as it relates to theology. And he says, to know Christ means to know his benefits, not as the scholastics teach, to reflect upon his natures. And in that regard, we're talking about the hypostatic union between the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, his divine nature and his human nature, and how that fits together, great theological mystery, he says, or the modes of his incarnation. And that's the subject on the table now. What happened in her body? What did the Holy Spirit do? What is the reality of this? This is an important thing for us to recognize, that when, once we get outside of what the text says, all we can do is speculate. And sometimes, like Melanchthon said, you have to uh, ask the question, how important is this for, you know, for us to go too deeply into it? I, I can say this regarding the statements we've just read. Uh, what are our options? Uh, if you just looked up uh, Jesus uh, is a bastard, for instance, on the internet. You'd find all kinds of websites. It's, it's one of the, 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 the slanderous ways uh, people like to talk about Christ. And usually they talk about Christ as the product of a relationship between Joseph and Mary before they were married. And, you know, like any group of, of engaged people, you know, they just jumped the gun and had this baby and, you know, behind the barn or whatever. And it just, yeah, that's what happened. And they wanted to talk their way around it because they're from pious families. And so we have an illegitimate child. 
Notice, though, in the Scripture, it's much worse than that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, here's how the story plays out. Joseph wants to divorce her because of this. And her husband, Joseph, right, he's the betrothed. And in that culture, as you've been taught, it's as good as marriage. That's why she's called, he's called the husband. She's called his, his betrothed. Uh, being a just man, right, he has to go by what the law says here. And willing and unwilling, rather, to put her to shame and also a compassionate man, he was going to do the right thing and divorce her to give her a certificate of divorce, even though they're just betrothed. That's how the culture treated betrothal. And yet he was compassionate. He didn't want to shame her. So he was going to do it quietly, resolve to divorce her quietly. So listen, if you're going to say Jesus was an illegitimate child and the incarnation, the, the, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and the, the virgin birth is just a, a cover for their immorality. It's not the immorality, at least as it's presented in the Bible, of Joseph and Mary. It's Mary and some unknown person. And that's important, especially because Jesus and the rest of his life and the, and the writers of his biographies make it clear that he is fulfilling the law, the ceremonial laws. We've looked at this in our study on the weekend of, of Luke. He's fulfilling all of the laws and going to great pains to do it. Well, look what the law says back here in Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. One who is born of a forbidden union may not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. And we find him at 12, where? On the Temple Mount, debating with the scribes. I mean, you've got to get back to, as, as I suppose couldn't be said better than Lewis says it, C.S. Lewis. I mean, you, can't, you don't have the option of some you know, well-meaning rabbi here. Or some family that's just, you know, they're, they're righteous people and kind of the story of Jesus snowballed. You've either got him as a, an out-and-out liar and deceiver, and his whole family is, or he's crazy, claiming to be something that he has no, no, no rights and credentials to claim, or, or he is who he says he is. I just love the way the Bible always puts a divide between choices. You, you can't have a middle ground for Christ, even as it relates to how he got here. You know, if your friend at work does not believe in the virgin birth, you've got to explain his birth somehow. Clearly, the point is repeatedly made. This is not Joseph's child. Whose child is it? And if he is from a, as it's put in Deuteronomy 23, a forbidden union, then he has no right, not only claiming to be the Messiah, he has no right even to be on the Temple Mount. He has no right in the assembly of those who get together at the temple for worship. I think that's an important thing to point out. This is a radically and highly immoral conception, or it is the product of the Holy Spirit. The question is why? Why did this happen? Why is there the need for the Spirit to go, as I would contend, and not strongly, because as Melanchthon said, it's all speculative, that the Holy Spirit created instantaneously the, the half of the genetic material to, to create this life in the womb of Mary. And I say that because I think the natural descendancy from Mary's line that's pointed out in the two genealogies that we studied in the beginning of Luke, it's important for us to recognize that some biological ancestral relationship is needed. I mean, that is to fulfill the promises. So if, if that's the case, why? Why is that? Why do we have to do that? Well, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Why would the Holy Spirit have to be the agency of the production of this life in the most unusual way, unlike anything else we have? We don't have any other example of this. How strange is it? We have some strange statements about people like John the Baptist being filled with the Spirit from the time that he's conceived in the womb of Elizabeth, but we don't have statements like this. 
the special creation of a body. Why was this body specially created by the Spirit? I mean, this hasn't happened. Think about it, really. When it comes down to it, it hasn't happened since the creation of the world. Remember when I tried to get you to think that creation is not some painter with a canvas painting the universe? You want to think about the Holy Spirit as creator. You need to think of him as a physicist. You need to think of him as someone who's dealing with the protein molecules and, and, and DNA and those kinds of things. And I put that up on the screen for us to think that way. Well, he hadn't done that kind of creative work in the cellular level of the creation of a human being since the creation of Adam. And now we have a a brand new Adam, as Paul puts in Romans 5, the second Adam. He also tells the Corinthians that Christ is that. Let's start in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, the apex and crescendo of this great book. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, that comparison, which I spent time when we preached through this, trying to to, to understand the, the two sides of this. But the law of sin and death is simply this. If you are sinful, as we established, not only by your behavior in chapter 6 of Romans, but by your association and descendancy from Adam in chapter 5 of Romans, then you deserve to die. You are the children of Adam, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, as Lewis liked to say. You are condemned as a part of the, the human race, not to mention you compound it with your own decisions and have since the time you were conscious and, and knew right from wrong. And that's the problem. Your status deserves the punishment of God, which is primarily, in a passive sense, to be cast from his presence and all of his benefits no longer go to you. You no longer get to have his common grace. That's being cast from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, that's the law of sin and death. But there is a law now at work that Romans has tried to spell out here early in the book of the law of the spirit of life. He's going to reverse that. There has to be a work of the spirit to change the law of sin and death for us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. There's something that we could not do against the perfect standard of the law. And he accomplished this in the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Very important phrase. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Verse 3, God has done it. Law couldn't do it. Flesh could not do it. All 46 chromosomes could not accomplish it as descendant from Adam. You had to have the spirit inject himself in humanity and provide for humanity a perfect solution to the perfect law. And it had to be done not by man, but by man who has been specially created by the spirit. And he is now found in the likeness of sinful flesh, which means he's not. And however God worked that out, whether I'm right or wrong about how God pulled this off, in the body of Mary. The bottom line is he is not now qualified as a full descendant of Adam in sinful flesh, but only in the likeness or the form of sinful flesh. And for sin, he was condemned and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law and all the things we couldn't do could be fulfilled in us. And the evidence of that in our life, bottom of verse four, is that we walk not according to the flesh anymore, doing the things we used to do, but according to the spirit, our lives have been changed. Let's put it this way. Why did the Spirit have to inject himself into the creation of human beings that seemed to be set up through the uh, propagation of mankind from the beginning? Why the special creation of Christ's body? Because he was going to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was not. We needed to produce a sinless human. Spirit, the Spirit had to be involved in something new, a second creation. Now, you don't need to turn to this one. We refer to it often, but Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. 
It's the reason Jesus didn't show up on Friday afternoon to be crucified and then raised on Sunday. The death of Christ was all that was needed. No big deal. We wouldn't need 30 plus years on the planet doing what he did. But according to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, at least in an episode of his life, we recognize that Christ came to live the life we didn't live and to fulfill all righteousness as he puts it himself as he responds to John. Do you remember the passage? He comes to be baptized. John says what you would say. You know what? I should not be baptizing the the perfect one. The perfect one should be baptizing me who needed repentance. And that's what John says to him. Baptize me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus said, permit it now so that we can fulfill all righteousness. I need to do everything properly, not only under the Old Testament ceremonial codes, but all the transcendent moral laws. I need to fulfill them all. And if God is calling sinful humans to repent and express that through baptism, then I need to do that. I need to go through that. And I need to be baptized. It's an amazing thought. The sinless one has to act as though he is the sinful one so that he can be treated by the Father at the end of time as the sinful sacrifice. And just to quote real quick off the cuff as you turn to Hebrews 2, the passage that we I mean, so tersely and compactly assembled, but it says it right there in a phrase in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that for our sakes, for Christ's whole salvific plan was to cause him who knew no sin, the perfect one, born as a special creation of the Holy Spirit in the likeness of human form, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He was going to be treated as the sinful one so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Why did the Holy Spirit have to make a sinful-looking human being in that he's in the form of Adam and Eve, but he's sinless? Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, if the ones he wants to redeem, the spiritually fallen people, are in sinful flesh and blood, then he himself likewise partook of the same things, although he wasn't in sinful flesh, but only in the likeness of sinful flesh. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation, a satisfaction that there might be complete payment for the sins of the people. Number three, the incarnation had to take place as a special creation, a special act of creation for Christ to be born so that there would be a payment, a propitiation for the penalty of human sin. God's problem with human beings needed to have justice paid. And the only way that could be paid is not in the currency of angelic beings or even in the currency of the divine being. It was divine in that it had infinite worth, but it had to be paid in the currency of human beings. And that's why there had to be a special creation. It couldn't just be Elijah or or Jeremiah or Malachi that was born and somehow was steered away from sinful things. It had to be a special creation of God free from the inherent sin of the ancestry of Adam, that he might be the perfect, flawless payment for sin. Not much more we can say about that and the role of the Spirit, but there's a lot more we should say and need to say about the interaction between the Holy Spirit and Christ in his earthly ministry. Number two, the Holy Spirit in Christ's ministry. 
And I decided since we were working through uh, Luke, just to spend some time in Luke here, walking through a few of these subpoints, at least A through D. Let's go here to Luke chapter 4. We'll make some indicative observations of things that the Bible tells us, and then we'll try to figure out why this is happening and what the point of all this is. Luke chapter 4, verse number 1. Luke chapter 4, verse number 1. Now, some of this is out of order in the sense that we're going to look at, in verse 1, a description of something that we'll try to truly unpack and understand at another level when we get to it as it relates to our sanctification and our Christian life. But for right now, let's just at least note it. Verse 1, first half of the verse, and Jesus, underline this now, full of the Holy Spirit. Let's just say this, letter A, that in Christ's ministry, here's an example where we see that he is filled with the Spirit, whatever that means. And we're going to get into that in, in the upcoming weeks. But whatever that means, he's that. And that's the same command that is given to us as redeemed children of God and even those prior, apparently, to their conversion. In John the Baptist's case, which is the only unique example we have of this, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from, a, from his mother's womb. But we have this relationship with the Spirit where it's some kind of visual illustration of a container being filled up. The volume is filled up with the Spirit. That's not the case. This is not a spatial reality. It's a relational reality, but it's spilled out for us in the phrase, full of the Holy Spirit. So Christ, second person of the Godhead, is now living in a human body, and that, that person is now, quote-unquote, filled up by the Spirit in his ministry. Look at the next thing, next half of the verse. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, second half. And he returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jot that down, letter B. He was led by the Spirit. Now, again, we'll look at that as it relates to the Christian life and our own sanctification in the weeks to come. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? At least, what does it mean for us? And we can assume, because there's no further explanation, that what we learn about the rest of Scripture as it relates to us being filled and led, it meant the same thing for him, that he was being filled and led by the Spirit. Well, that's interesting. The second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, is now said to be filled with the third person of the Godhead and led by the third person of the Godhead. Go back to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We dealt with this in the symbols and emblems of the Holy Spirit, and we certainly preached through it when we were going through Luke on the weekends. But let's reread these two verses in verses 21 and 22 to remind us of a very unique encounter with the Holy Spirit that the gospel writers record. Verse 21, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... Only Luke tells us he was praying. And the heavens were opened. Okay, so something happened. Clouds, sky, they saw something in the skies. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Which again, we said, there's a bit of an asterisk there and a, and a question mark. But it seems that there was some kind of personage, some kind of, you know, something coming down that looked like a body, like a person. And it floated down, not like a helicopter or a helium balloon, because they didn't have those illustrations. But it came down gently like a dove landing. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit now descends on him. Now we've talked a lot about this in the past and, and we don't need a lot of explanation on this, I suppose. But letter C, we can say this. There was a visible, I want to put this in quotes so we make sure we understand what that means in light of our previous uh, teaching. And that is that he was endowed with in some visible form, some kind of visible symbolic anointing of the Spirit. And what does that mean? Again, what's the word anointing mean? What does it mean? To pour. Uh, it can mean to paint. It can mean to... to 
to dab something on you, to, to apply some kind of, of liquid. It's this picture of like the Old Testament prophet, priest, or king having oil poured on his head. And now it's the picture of some visual manifestation of the Spirit of God coming down on top of him. Now, as I taught through this some time back when we were going through Luke 3, I reminded you that Jesus was in the temple as a 12-year-old, clearly showing you know, his, his at least walking in step with the Spirit. I mean, the intelligence and wisdom of the Spirit. We see that his lesser uh, cousin here, the, the John the Baptist, he wasn't even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal, according to John. And he was filled with the Spirit from the time he was conceived. Uh, I mean, certainly the life of Christ up until this point at age 30 or whatever he was at this point, certainly wasn't devoid of the Spirit. But something symbolic happened. And that was so that everyone would see that he was the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to be the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king. Luke 4, here's the connection. In Luke chapter 4, when he's in the synagogue, he starts to speak of his ministry. And the way he starts this in verse 18 is by reading this text from Isaiah, which says the spirit of the Lord is. Now, here's a little preposition, which describes the symbolic action of chapter 3, is upon me. Okay, now, we've already learned as he's in the desert in verse 1 that he's filled with the Spirit and that he's led by the Spirit. And now the, the preposition is different. He's upon me, which gives that image of chapter 3, the anointing, the pouring of God's endowment on him in the third person of the Spirit. Now he's quoting the Messianic prophecy from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, here's our word, anointed me to proclaim the good news. Who's anointed? The kings of the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament, the priests of the Old Testament. And now I'm going to go and proclaim the good news to the poor. Sent me to proclaim liberty uh, to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. As we said, he's not into a, you know, this, these, are, these are symbolic and, and analogous to the realities of what we need in terms of our salvation. Not that he's there in doing ophthalmological work. Uh, and liberty to those who are oppressed. He's not there just to let people out of prison. These are things, as we've studied many times, that relate to our need for salvation. But the point is here, he's saying, Spirit is upon me. Now I'm going to go out and do some ministry, primarily to preach, as we, we learned last weekend. Now, let's put it this way, and, and this may be a stretch from that text, but I'll give you a cross-reference here in a second that'll drive this home. The picture of the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messiah, which was, frankly, and, and, and admittedly, a human, in many passages, a, a seemingly human king, which of course he is human, but he's also divine. He has the endowment or empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's the picture of the Old Testament Messiah. He was going to be endowed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is why he quotes this, this Isaiah text, and this is why he describes himself as anointed by having the Holy Spirit upon him. Here's, though, what I think it means as we see it throughout the text. It's just a cross-reference for letter D here. When you see him, and I use this because we're going to get into this passage later tonight. He says, but if I, by the Spirit of God, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, he's making claims about the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom and he himself being the king and he's displaying his power and his ministry is being done. And he describes that ministry here as being done by the Holy Spirit. So that deference to, reliance upon, and empowerment by the Spirit is the thing I think that's clearly being set up in the very first text he reads in the synagogue after his baptism at the inauguration and initiation of his ministry. I am here to do ministry 
by being reliant upon and empowered by the third person of the Godhead. The question naturally arises, why in the world would you need to do that? Why? And if this is all about fulfilling prophecy, as I said recently in a sermon, all you'd have to do if you're God and you're working out a master plan is don't embed those promises in the prophecies. The question is, why, did it, why was it prophesied that way? And why was it carried out that way? Why couldn't the second person of the Godhead do this on his own? I mean, that's the natural question that should arise. Some answers coming, but it needs to begin with this text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which, of course, if you know the context, starting in verse number 3, it all stems from a lesson regarding our lives, which is that we shouldn't be selfish or showing selfish ambition or conceit. Me first, we should be humble, consider others as more important or significant than ourselves, not looking to our interests but the interests of others. And then he says we should be like Christ, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God... Form of God, morphe. This is an interesting play on words. There is no morphe of God. We talk about the word in English, morph, to morph into. We're talking about its shape. What shape is God in? Help me with this. None. Why? He's spirit. He has no shape. See, what's the point here? Whatever form or morphe means in the Greek here, the idea is it's whatever defines God as God. He is defined as and is ontologically, if you will, in terms of his being, he is very God as Many of the passages of Scripture make it crystal clear, whether it's Hebrews 1, John 1, 1 John 1. All these texts make it clear he is the exact representation of God. He is God. And the Bible says here that though he was God in the form of God, in the definition of God, all the parameters that make God God, he was that. He didn't count equality, which what is the context? I don't want to have to stand up for all my rights. I don't want to have to put myself first. I'm not concerned with selfish ambition or self-promotion. He has this humble attitude when it comes to the task at hand, which is human redemption. And he doesn't think that equality with God is a thing he's got to hang on to. Don't need all the prerogatives and privileges of deity. But he, here's the key word here. And if you were in Christology, remember the Greek word kenosis in theology, as Melanchthon would tell you, is the idea of the emptying of himself, that the second person of the Godhead emptied himself. That's how it's translated in our text, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, what's the deal? Was he not a man? He was. But what, as it said over there in Romans 8, not in the sinful definition of man, because he wasn't as the picture we saw in the, the, the uh, incarnation and, and the, the conception of Christ by the Spirit. He doesn't share the, the, the guilt of mankind, but he's in the form or in the likeness of men, sinful men. And being found in the form of man or human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which is saying he could have the prerogatives and rights to not do it. But as the text is trying to teach us, we should not be that kind of person. We should be willing to let other other people's needs infringe upon our rights. We ought to serve each other at great sacrifice to ourselves. Christ was all of that. And the ultimate picture is he's God, but he lays aside all those prerogatives and privileges to serve because he's willing to do this mission for the Father and out of love for us. He's willing to die in our place. That's what we call the kenosis, and it'd be worth writing down again. And by that, we mean he emptied himself. So whatever there is between him being found as a servant in the form of a man and the glorious second person of the Godhead, as Jesus often refers to in his earthly ministry, think of John 17 at this point, when he prayed, return to me the glory that I had before. Before what? Before the incarnation. He had a kind of privilege and prerogative and glory and power 
that is apparently here, as we often say, laid aside the emptying of himself, and now he comes and serves in this humbled state, in this emptied state, the kenosis. Now, kenosis is often a doctrine that you can watch a lot of through the history of Christian theology. You can see a lot of departures into what we would deem as heresy because it doesn't stay consistent with the rest of the Bible, which, by the way, having encountered some heresy today, it's always that way. You know, Satan, he's, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He's always going to take his cues to try and dupe people like you and me from the Bible. And when people take biblical concepts, they then use those concepts in unbiblical ways, usually to take pieces of the scripture and disregard them. You watch that. That's the strategy. As Paul said, we shouldn't be ignorant of his schemes, which in that context was how we treat people after their repentance. But in our case now, we're talking about, as the the epistles often warn us, that just like there were false prophets, there's going to be false teachers. As we saw in 2 Peter 3 this last weekend, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And they try to get us to do it. And when someone takes the kenosis and they look at that text and then they make implications about the kenosis... They end up saying things that are unbiblical if only they take the rest of these passages into consideration. You've got to interpret every text of Scripture in light of all the rest of it because God has given us his revelation in all 66 books of the Bible. We need to be on guard for this. And I saw it again today, and I thought to myself, why are we so gullible to buy unbiblical implications even though they rest on biblical doctrines when they clearly violate other passages of Scripture? And that's why you got to know the whole of the Bible. That's why, by the way, and I can't stand it, I meet people that have been Christians for years and decades and they've never read the whole Bible. That is an egregious, an egregious thing. You better tell me you're illiterate if you've not read through the whole Bible. You have to read the whole Bible over and over and over again. And sometimes in January, I'll republish an article I've written about one of the best safeguards against heresy is just you reading through the Bible every year. All you'd have to do. That if in the next five years you could read through it five more times, which is not a lot. If you could have five more good, thoughtful readings and digesting every verse of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible. Though we don't answer every mystery and question every time we read it. If you could just read it over and over and over again. If you get five more under your belt in the next five years, when the next twisted doctrine comes your way, you'll go, that doesn't seem right. I may not be able to quote what chapters they're in, but you know what? I've learned enough about who God is. To know that doesn't fit, that doesn't match. And I'm sick and tired of of people claiming Christ. And by the way, the hubris today of people that want to think they know the Bible because they can quote one verse that seems to support what they're saying, but they disregard 12 others. The kenosis is that way. I know I'm getting up on my soapbox because this is a raw thing in my head today, but be careful. We can't make implications about biblical doctrines that deny the teaching of Scripture elsewhere. That's why you got to have a mastery of the whole book, rightly handling the word of truth important. Kenosis. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean this, which many people have diverted from biblical doctrine in saying things about the kenosis that aren't true. They've said things like, this is still under number one, by the way, the son did not stop being God. Let's just make that clear. He is fully God. Some of the earliest heresies of the church were that if he emptied himself, then he ceased to be God and he wasn't fully God. There's, you know, you could look at any sermon I've done or any book that, that deals with the deity of Christ. There's several. But I'm just thinking of Philip asking him in John 14, Hey, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, I have been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me, if you know me, you've seen the Father. You know the Father if you know me. What kind of equality is that? Did he cease to be God because he laid aside something? This privilege and prerogative of deity? No, not at all. And in a sense, as some theologians have rightly said, we need to see the full deity of Christ, the second person of the Godhead, taking on humanity. I know kenosis seems like some kind of dis- uh, subtraction, but it's really the addition of humanity. And that addition of humanity involves some kind of voluntary laying aside of privileges and prerogatives. That's the picture of the incarnation. He didn't stop being God. And he certainly could display his divine power when he wanted to that was his own divine power. And we see this throughout, punctuating throughout the ministry of Christ. I think, for instance, of Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew 8, Matthew 8, 26 and 27. He rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? There was a sense of, of, of owned personal authority where he could marshal the weather with his commands. The morphe of God, the definition of God. Think of it this way. Don't think of it spatially. The morphe of God, the, uh, the definition of God took on the morphe of humanity, the definition of humanity. See, that sounds like addition, right? It is. The definition of God came and took on the definition of man. That's why theologians have rightly said, and sometimes the- theological math doesn't seem to add up. Three is one, one is three. Well, this one doesn't seem to either. He's 100% God, and he is also 100% man. That's the incarnation. The morphe of God took on the morphe of man, as humiliating and self-sacrificing as that was. All right. Why the reliance? Well, we haven't really answered the question yet, but I can at least say this. It's a self-imposed reliance. What is the context of Philippians 2? Hey, big, big deal, big shot. Somebody there needs to cared for and someone needs to sacrifice. Someone needs you to spend the extra dollar, stay the extra hour, go the extra mile. Do it. Lay down your rights and do it. What does that mean? Nobody's got a gun to your head. Willingly, voluntarily, that's the definition of love, by the way. Willingly and voluntarily give of yourself. Sacrifice, humble, be like, have the mind that was also in Christ Jesus. The picture of Christ's emptying, his kenosis, whatever that means, is a self-imposed reliance. In other words, why couldn't he just continue to always exercise his own divine authority? Why did he keep relying on the Spirit? Well, because he chose to do that. This was self-imposed. Let's start with the Father. He certainly relied on the Father. And I thought I would pick the passage we just studied, which I think was two weeks ago. Luke 6, 12 and 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And then when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them... 12, whom he named apostles. We made the case, what a big decision this was, that he would spend all night, six, seven, eight hours praying, and then come down and make this decision. Why would he need to, right? Why would he need to? Well, he's God. He's, he's God incarnate. Compare that even, and I don't want to make too much of these texts, but there are many passages where there doesn't seem to be any seeming deference to the Father in the things that are being done. This is the 12-year-old scene when he's in the temple, and the response was this, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He possesses wisdom. We just read another one in Matthew. Look at this. Look at this man's power and authority. Even the, the, the winds and the waves obey him. The weather obeys him. He has the ability to do what he does in every passage. 
He didn't need to spend the night praying with the Father. Whatever the Father does, he does. He didn't even need to pray, but he does. And he spends all night praying. We're still asking the question why, but what we're showing by the contrast here, CP means compare. Uh, We're comparing texts and saying, well, we see that he could, and we see that he, though, chooses not to. How about on the Spirit, the reliance on the Spirit? I suppose we've already hinted to this in that he's filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Why doesn't the second person of the Godhead lead himself? He's certainly got the ability to do it. He's got the authority to do it. Why doesn't he need to be filled with the Spirit? Can he be filled with Christ? He is Christ. Matthew 12, I've quoted this and I'll quote it again and we'll get to it in, in detail a little bit later on. But Matthew 12, 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You mean to tell me you're casting out demons with a reliance and a deference to the Spirit of God? That's what he claims. Compare that here to Mark chapter 9, verse 25. He rebuked the unclean spirit. Not by anybody else's authority. The text seems to be straightforward and clear. And he says this, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him. No, by the spirit of God, I command. Now in the text in Matthew 12, he's relying on the spirit. Compare that to Mark 9. It's his command. It seems to be his authority. As a matter of fact, even the demons, as we've already seen in the gospel of Luke, they're always saying, you could do all kinds of things to me. We've looked at the parallel passages. Are you here to torment me before the time? Who are they talking about? The Spirit of God? Trust me, there, there's no demon thinking you're going to torment them before the time. They're not scared of you. They're scared of Almighty God. The demons are scared of Christ. Not the Spirit, Christ. Are they scared, scared of the Spirit? Absolutely. But what they're focusing on is the authority that is possessed inherently in Christ. And yet... He's also there publicly casting out demons by the Spirit of God. Self-imposed reliance. Here's what I want to say in the middle of this list, number three. It's not that he could not, because we have many examples of him using his own authority, his inherent authority, and his inherent power. It's that he would not. We're asking why the reliance. I just want to make it clear. He could, and he did. But as a general rule, he doesn't, because he wouldn't. This is the self-imposed reliance upon the Father in prayer and upon the Spirit in terms of empowerment because he chose to do this as a purposeful decision. Let me show you one more example of could versus would. Matthew 4, verse 3. We saw the same thing in in Luke uh, chapter 4, but here it is in, in Matthew 4. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What kind of temptation is it? If you can't do it, never has Satan ever tempted me to make food out of rocks because I can't. I'm not tempted in that regard ever in any way. He was because he had the power to do it and he could have done it, which by the way is only a sinful temptation if it would have been outside the will of God, something the spirit would not have empowered, but he could have empowered and he could have done. And yet we read over in Matthew 14, there's just a few loaves and a couple fish. He breaks those loaves, gives them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. You're turning bread into, I mean, you're turning nothing into bread. Bread into bread, I suppose, but bread's coming out of nothing. You are creating bread just like you could have in Matthew 4. I want to show you the difference between could have but would not. The question is, in what cases do you and choose to, in which cases do you not? Well, let's think this through. I want to give some answers to this. Let's turn, oh, we don't need to turn this on the screen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Think this through. The times that he didn't, the times that he 
relied upon the Spirit, relied upon the Father. The reason he needed the filling was not a need with a capital N, but it was a need in terms of intention. He had an intention in this. We already read one text that's the parallel to this, but let's read this one. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it's up on the screen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, there's the key word, with our weakness. See, I can't turn rocks into bread. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, his temptations were different. But he, instead of fixing his problems with his divine power, was willing to endure the problems. The Bible says here, in part because he sympathizes with us, because he's able to sympathize with us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have need. He responds sympathetically as a great high priest who is a part of the weak humanity that he represents. And that is the picture of a God who relies for a purpose and says he will not do this independently and exercise his divine attributes independently, not in all cases, because he wants to sympathize with us, which has many cascading purposes so that you would come to him in prayer, so that you would be the kind of person that recognizes the great mercy he has for your weaknesses and to the intensity of your temptations. Think about the cross. Remember the statement, and I should have put this on the screen. He could could call 10,000 angels to rescue him. Remember that line? He has the ability to fix the problems, but he chooses not to. And in submitting himself to the same resources we have, he becomes the sympathetic high priest for us. Because I can't exercise divine prerogatives or, or privileges. He decides to forego his. There's a lot that could be preached on that. 1 John 2, 4 through 6. Let me give you another reason. Number five, 1 John 2, verses 4 through 6. Whoever says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Wow, couldn't be clearer than that, right? There needs to be a trajectory of consistent growing obedience in your life. You can say you know him and if you don't see that change in your life, you're a liar. But whoever keeps his word in him, in Christ, truly the love of God is perfected. And in our lives, we see that. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You ought to live like he lived. As was spelled out in Philippians 2, you ought to put other people's needs before your own and be willing to sacrifice your privileges and prerogatives for their good, for the sake of serving them as a servant and letting God exalt you. You humble yourself. He'll exalt you at the proper time. All those things provide for us an example. And if he chooses the apostles without a night of prayer... You may be led to think, hey, you know what? To live a Christian life as a human that is pleasing to God, you know what? I don't need to pray. Think about that. He prayed longer about that than most of us have prayed about almost anything in our lives. And he does it to make the point that my life is the life that is pleasing to the Father. And to make a life that's a template for your life, I have to lay aside my prerogatives and trust in the empowerment and the wisdom that is endowed and the directions and convictions that are given by the relationship that I have with the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Godhead had no intrinsic need for the third person to fill, direct, guide, or do anything in his life. But he submitted to that for the sake of not only sympathy, but something that should come to mind every day in our lives for the sake of example. He is the template for the Christian life as it relates to the Holy Spirit. That's why the words fill and led and all the rest that we'll see, the Spirit being upon him, are all helpful in our own Christian life. Real quickly, let's deal with the Holy Spirit and the death of Christ. The Holy Spirit and death of Christ. We don't have a lot to go on. I'll put the passage that I do have 
which is debated. There's a little grammatical problem that's tucked away here in the Greek language. It's hard to see. Nevertheless, I think the ESV translators have it right by putting a capital S here, which refers to the third person of the Godhead when it says this. It's a very stinging passage, but in the middle of it, we learn a little something about the death of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, and I've already used that as a descriptive of the spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Not much to go on. And in light of Melanchthon's warning, I don't know that I want to go much farther than to say it appears in this passage, the spirit of God was active in the propitiation, the offering, the satisfaction that was given to the father in the cross. Was the spirit there? Yes. There was activity, according to this text, when Christ offered himself, and he did it through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Born through the agency of the Spirit, died through the agency of the Spirit to bring an acceptable sacrifice to the Father, which may maybe is appropriate for a Psalm 22 sidebar real quick. I get this asked a lot, and that is, why did Jesus on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is a bit of the conundrum we find even in the question we're addressing right now. Why did the second person of the Godhead have to rely on the third person of the Godhead? And why, why in the world would the second person of the Godhead act like he was in somehow, some way alienation from and being forsaken by the first person of the Godhead? You do understand when Jesus is on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting a psalm, a lament psalm, that so many of the, pas- the, the particulars of that passage, they relate as a kind of a type two prophecy, if you will, a prophecy that you wouldn't think he's not the Messiah if he didn't fulfill. But as you look back on it, you see the perfect connection between Psalm 22 and the cross and what happened there. That picture of the fulfillment of that was the lament that he was trying to bring to our minds and to those who were listening, not only the first century, but many more millions of people in the centuries that followed to make that connection of the utter pain of the propitiation and the sacrifice, that he was being treated as the sacrifice that you and I could benefit from. Or to put it another way, he was being treated as though he were you and he were me. And in that, there was a sense of this despair and alienation. That picture is much more than a statement of like, well, I should get to the most basic question. Did he really wonder where God was? No, of course not, right? The, the father, was. it was no question in his mind what was happening. But this rhetorical question, my God, my God, why, for your, why have you forsaken me, was a reference to Psalm 22 and the despair of that. Nevertheless, the involvement of the Father and the Son, uh, the Father and the Spirit with the Son's death, this is the only reference we have uh, that, that gives us much or anything really specifically to go on. So that's why you have about one inch of white space there under number three. Number four, which is equally as small, the Holy Spirit and Christ's resurrection. Now, there are three texts that may refer to this. One that's, I think, pretty clear. One that's not. One that's in the middle. Romans 1, 4. This is after that lengthy discussion about the fact that he fulfills all the promises, the predictive promises, and the prophecies of David's son, and all those great things. And then it says in verse 4, and that Christ was declared to be the Son of God. Now, he was the Son of God, but it was emphatically declared through an act. What was that? Declared to be the Son of God in power according to It says the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, I think we noted both of these descriptives, eternal spirit and spirit of holiness. 
But the idea here is that in this case, his resurrection was done through the agency according to the Spirit. Now, some people would argue that's just the spirit of the prophetic plan. The Spirit laid out how this would happen in the Old Testament book that he wrote, and now it's done according to that, perhaps. But if that's your contention, you can't get around it here, I suppose, in the agency of the Spirit that he was actively involved in the resurrection. Which again, you can say the Father raised him from the dead. Here we can see the agency of the Spirit. And Jesus made it clear, if you kill me, I have the authority to raise my, myself up. So you have all three persons of the Godhead who have divine authority, power, and prerogative to do the act. And all three take some credit for the act of the resurrection. Verse 11, Romans 8. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So we know this is the Spirit. And we understand that in this case, he was the one who was given credit fully in this sentence to raising Jesus from the dead. If the Spirit, capital S, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's the third person of the Spirit, of the Godhead. Then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's an amazing and motivating passage to think that the very spirit that can get you to say no to temptation and to get out of bed and read your Bible tomorrow morning is the very spirit that was active in the body, the dead body of Christ that raised it from. I mean, if he can raise Christ from the dead, he can get you out of bed tomorrow. That's what we're talking about. I mean, the basics of you walking this life of of righteousness, it can be done. This is a passage of hope. But what we glean from this is, it's clearly said, the Spirit raised them from the dead. First Peter 3 might be another. The ESV translators don't buy it. I'm not sure that I do either. Made alive in the Spirit. We won't even look at that one. But here's two passages that we can look at in terms of seeing that the Spirit was involved in his birth, in his ministry, throughout his ministry, his baptism, his death, his resurrection. That leaves us with one sticky question to deal with for the remainder of our time. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Can't be a Christian very long at all. Well, I shouldn't say that these days. Hopefully, you're a new Christian when you're reading through the Gospels and you run into this thrice-repeated warning that you can do a lot of bad things in your life. You can blaspheme a lot of people, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness for you. That's scary. That's Luke 12, Mark 3, and Matthew 12 all say the same thing. So let's turn to this passage and let's look at the whole thing, Matthew 12, 22 through 32, and let's once and for all understand uh, or at least reaffirm your understanding of what this means, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is this? First of all, letter A, the scene. Before we even look and read the text, I want to give you the scene. Jesus, one of the things that he's doing, as we'll see in Luke, and we already have twice now, he's encountering unclean spirits, as Luke likes to call them, demons, fallen angels, who are active in a way that is so phenomenal in the life of Christ that it seems unparalleled and unrivaled in any other point in history. We have demonic activity that is so intense at the time of Christ that part of his messianic claim and the power of the coming kingdom and having light come and expel darkness, that symbolic, philosophical, theological way to say it, is is exemplified by him taking people that are so entwined with and oppressed by, or as we saw on, on this last weekend's sermon, troubled with unclean spirits, that with a word or a touch, he fixes the whole problem and sends them away and casts them out and separates people from the damage of demonic spirits. That's been happening a lot in Christ's ministry. And all the Gospels are talking about it. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
in cases both in Capernaum, Judea, and in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, all in, in all three settings, you have people claiming that Jesus is doing this miraculous work that is so dramatic, he's doing it by the power of Satan. That's a continuous claim. And the ones that like to make that claim were the religious elite of the day. So that's the backdrop. This has been happening many times. And, and, and let's read now the context here of Matthew 12 or the text of Matthew 12, 22 through 33. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. It's pretty bad. Blind and mute, we assume deaf as well. I mean, this guy's a mess. And according to the text, this is a demonically induced kind of of craziness here, of, of impairment. Healed him so that the man spoke and saw. The guy's normal now. And all the people were amazed. and They said, can this be the son of David? that's the winner, right? I mean, that, that's the point. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is upon you. The king has arrived. He's transferring people from the dominion of darkness to light. He's batting back the gates of hell. This is him. But the Pharisees, when they heard of it, which by the way, what's the problem with the Pharisees again? I mean, the Bible repeatedly castigates them based on their motive. And what's one of the bad motives in the, in the Pharisees? Are? One of the repeated, most frequently described bad motive in their heart. What is it? Envy, jealousy. They were jealous. When people flocked to to Christ, they felt snubbed. They didn't like that. They wanted the attention. And that's why Jesus goes right to the heart all the time with the Pharisees. Look, they pray to get noticed. They fast to get noticed. They give to get noticed. They want the best seats. They want all the accolades. That's the problem with these people, which, by the way, is such the problem. It's the core sin of the universe, pride and self-promotion. That's why it's so harped on in the Bible. Nevertheless, to think about the motives here of the Pharisees, they just can't stand it. If you were to stop them and take that motive out of their heart and say, really, come on, what do you think is happening here? I think a lot of them say, wow, this could be the son of David. I mean, where was he born? What is he doing? Yeah, just like with John. John didn't have the problem. What did John say? Let him increase. Let me decrease. Let him be the guy. I can't even untie his sandals. And, And then what? When he's asking, are you the Christ? Jesus' disciples, he said, go tell John's disciples, go tell John. Just tell him what's happening. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening. He'll know. Pharisees could have had the same heart, but it was blinded by envy and jealousy. Make sure that's not a part of what's going on in your heart. If it is, let's fight that battle and win it. Pharisees heard it. They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And that goes back to the Old Testament. It's a, it's a modification of the god Baal, Baal, the prince of Baal. It was their, it was their, their nickname for, for Satan. Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. Okay, we understand this is miraculous and supernatural. There's no denying that. He heals them with a word. He touches them, they get healed. He says things, they get healed. And But, you know, there's more than one supernatural being out there that can do stuff like this. Satan can do that. Now, that's not even rational, but they're saying it because they're jealous and envious. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided by itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Make much sense, guys. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? You're out there trying to do the same things. You're out there trying to fix people that are spiritually oppressed, who've got harassing problems in their lives and associated symptoms from their their oppression. How do you do it? Therefore, they will be your judges. Ask them. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's crediting, in this case, the agency of the Holy Spirit in this act of power. 
And then he says, because I'm claiming who I'm claiming to be from the very beginning of the reading of the Isaiah scroll in the Capernaum synagogue, he's saying, you should know the king is here. The kingdom is arriving. Verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he can plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it'll be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. There's your chilling verse that every Christian has read at one point and wondered, what's happening here? A lot of non-Christians read it and wonder, maybe I've committed this sin. There's a problem. Let's look at the charge a little more closely. Verse 24. I didn't give you anything to write here, but you need to at least note what the charge is in verse 24. The charge that prompts this warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy, remember, is to take something that is holy and to call it profane. That's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is be able to say something about something that is holy and righteous and to say that it's wicked and evil. That's blasphemous. This warning against blasphemy regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, the charge is, if you think this through, the charge is that you are not doing these good deeds and helping these people You're not fixing their problems with their harassment from demons. By God, you're doing it by Satan. Satan can do these things too. Therefore, people out there, you don't want to get in league with a guy who's in league with Satan. You don't want to follow a guy who's doing this by Satan's power. Now, here are the religious leaders talking to people who they're, you know, wanting to be, I suppose, right with God. They're saying, don't follow this guy. Don't follow this guy. And all they can do in this setting is pin the work that's clearly miraculous With a word, with a touch, he's healing people that are credited in the minds of everyone as being demon-oppressed. And he says, they say, don't follow him. He's in league with Satan. That's the charge. Let's be really clear about the charge. Don't follow this guy. What he's doing is satanic. Christ's response. Let's break this down. Verses 25 and 26, he says this. Satan's not defeating Satan here. Knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself can stand. If Satan is casting out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some situations throughout history and even biblical history when there are some things going on that seem to have some, I don't know, negative impact on demonic beings or demonic activity that are done by demonic activity. That's occasionally happened. But when Jesus is going around consistently doing things to release people from the oppression of spiritual enemies, he's saying, what am I doing? I mean, I'm clearly winning a battle here against the forces of evil. If you're really thinking that what I'm doing is done by demons, if I'm doing it by the prince of demons, Satan himself, I'm really, I'm really attacking my own family here. I'm really reversing the work that I want to be advancing. You're saying I'm in league with Satan. How could I be in league with Satan? Satan is not defeating Satan. doesn't make any sense. Then in verse 27, he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, you have guys within your ranks in Judaism. They were called the Jewish exorcists who went around and tried to help people, just like even today there will be pastors that might help people that have some phenomenal situations going on in their lives that they think are spiritual problems demonic problems. And they'll go, and these are the the Jews, right? They're, They're in the name of Yahweh. They're coming to help people that are oppressed. They're trying to help people that are oppressed. How do they help them? In the name of God. 
They're trying to put away Satan's work by God's work. That's what they're doing. All he's saying is think about that. You've got people trying to help the oppressed and you're doing it for the name of God in the go- for the good of, of the kingdom, for the good of righteousness. Just, you need to think through your claim. I mean, obviously Christ is far more access- successful at this than any of the Jewish exorcists, but he's just trying to make the claim, listen, you're claiming the opposite for your guys. Verse 28, he says, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if mine is from God, if this is really the spirit, the Holy Spirit's work, then you need to know that there's no turning from me and, and my claim. I am the king. You need to submit to my leadership. I'm the Lord. I'm the Messiah. And the kingdom has arrived. It's going to arrive in stages, by the way, and is going to be summarily rejected by the leaders of Israel. But nevertheless, that's the claim. If this is legitimate, then you should make the connection. Same argument he makes to John the Baptist. Look at what's happening. Captives are going free. The blind are seeing. I mean, people are freed from oppression. You should understand the Messiah. Those are characteristics of the Messiah. All right, that's his response. Now, he wraps this up by saying, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's unforgivable. Let's look through the components of the unforgivable sin. Let's just think it through. We've got the context. We've thought it through. You picture it. It's the same in Matthew. Uh, I'm sorry, in in Mark, and it's the same in Luke. Same context. One is a bit removed, literarily, but they're they're all connected to the same problem, same context. Here are the components. Number one, these are people witnessing Christ's miracles, which are, according to the claim of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. That's how he gets to be in a part of this discussion. There were a lot of people that thought about Christ, the Son of Man, and had lots of opinions that were negative, But here was a demonstration of the Spirit's power, a miraculous sign. And the miraculous sign was for good. In this case, you could even put a subset of this, the miraculous work of God to benefit and to do good clearly to bat back the work of the enemy. They witnessed that. They saw it. They were witnesses to it. They could testify to seeing it. Then the Pharisees who, who are being addressed here are telling other people, that's Satan. That's the work of Satan. That, by the way, is the blasphemy. Holy Spirit doing good work is now castigated by critics for jealousy and envy's sake to tell other people that's the exact opposite. That's evil, satanic work that's being done. There's your two components of the unforgivable sin. That's the context. That's the setting. You have to be there to see the miraculous event. Then you have to attribute that, that, that miraculous event done by Christ through the work of the Spirit. You have to attribute that, credit that to Satan. There's nothing more blasphemous than that. And Jesus makes clear in his judgments to Chorazin and other cities, I did miracles in your midst. It's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on judgment day than for you guys. Because I did this work in your presence. If there was anybody that should have seen who I was and that the kingdom had arrived, it should have been you. To whom much is given, much is required, I guess is another way to say this. Now, that should be clear just in how I've broken that down. Letter E, that sin is not now possible. It's impossible. Someone cannot commit, in the context of Matthew 12, the unpardonable sin. Now, it's a record of what Christ said. The question may be, well, well, then why was it recorded? Because there's a parallel to it. There's a parallel. Obstinacy is still possible. And let me break that down for you quickly with the time we have remaining. It is still possible to blaspheme, not in the manner of the unforgivable sin. In other words, these can be reversed. But the context in which these are stated are stated to make it very clear to us that we ought to have a chilling, fearful concern that these things do not persist in our lives, and that's how they're presented. Let's turn to this one and call it hard hearts. 
uh, hard hearts. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 15. A bit of a paragraph here, but I want you to see it. So once you jot that down, Hebrews 3, 7 through 15. These folks were blaspheming. The parallels that we can find with this chilling warning are found in the heart of the people that are willing to see the good news of the gospel, to hear the opportunity for forgiveness and infilling by the Spirit, and to say, I don't want it. There's a parallel there. It's not blasphemy of the Spirit. But if it persists, that obstinacy is, is judged. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. I want to pick a passage that would show you that the Holy Spirit is involved in the plea for the gospel. And when he convicts hearts, as he quotes now the old psalm, today if you'd hear his voice, he says, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now think that through. Same paradigm. The miracles of the crossing of the Red Sea, of the manna, of the water out of the rock. They saw all those things and they hardened their hearts. That's how it's described here in verse 8. He says, don't do that. You can do the same thing. Now, you don't see the works of Moses and you don't see the works of Christ secondhand. And it was secondhand for the Hebrews here, as we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But even as secondhand recipients of the message of the gospel, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, don't harden your heart. That's a damning problem. Is it reversible? It is, but only to a point. Keep reading. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. Parallel that to verse 8. They have hard hearts. They're not interested in the truth. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my anger, my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, there is a a trigger there. There is a point in which there God says, I'm done. I've decided you're done. Why? Because of a persistent hard heart. Now, that's not blasphemy of the spirit, but the parallel's there, and the spirit is involved. The Spirit is offering life, and you're saying, even though He's convicting you, I don't want it. At, in time, there's a, mm, no more. At least that's the parallel. That's why He says in verse 12, take care, brothers. They're not first-person recipients of, of the message of the gospel or Christ. They're not, they're under the ministry of Moses, and yet they have to be careful, lest there be an evil heart there, an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We're not talking about Christians that are losing their salvation. We're talking about people that are hearing the message of the gospel, feeling the conviction of the Spirit, and now they're going to go, forget it. They have a hard heart. They don't want to respond. Instead, you ought to be exhorting one another, verse 13, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you should be, here's our word again, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. As it is said, today, if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. Just because I tell you you cannot contextually or historically commit the unpardonable sin, and that's what I'm teaching you. You can't. It's not, it's not possible contextually or historically anymore. You can, through the obstinate hard heart, have the conviction of the Spirit harden your heart and have God say, I'm done then. He can, like he did in the desert, swear in his wrath, you're not going to enter my rest, which as we learned recently in chapter 4 is a parallel to our salvation there in Hebrews chapter 4. Hard hearts. It's put another way later in the book in chapter 10, and let's just call it deliberate refusal. There's a deliberate decision and refusal. After the full explanation, the full laying out of the gospel, there's clarity about it, and we assume, based on chapter 3, because all these warnings need to be grouped together, there was adequate conviction. The Spirit convicted you. You knew it. You not only knew it intellectually, you knew it in your heart, but your heart fought it, and then there was a deliberate decision. Verse 26, Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning, this is a life of determined, deliberate refusal. As it says in the next word there, deliberately. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
then what else is there? No longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Done. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For anyone who had set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's how it worked in the old covenant. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? There's a poetic way of saying, I've heard it, don't want it, not interested, I've had it, you know, I'm I'm done. He's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, quote unquote, set apart, not in salvation, but clearly he was part of the band who sat there just like they did in the desert, having all the benefits of the manna and the water and the deliverance. And instead they're outraging the spirit of grace. There again, I connect this to the spirit of God. There's a blasphemy, an outrage. It's not a point in time. It's not a sentence. It's not something you do, but a deliberate refusal of the truth over some matter of time, I suppose. We know him, verse 30, who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The warning in the Bible is equally as grave as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. People, though, in Christian circles today fear the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as though it's something they said at some point in time. All I'm trying to do in this comparison is saying, listen, the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not possible, but the obstinate heart is possible. And at some point, God has had enough and he's fed up and he's done. And all that's left for that person is the judgment of God. I think what you need to be careful of is saying when that point takes place, don't know. The people that come up to me after a service or during the week and they say, I think I've hit that place. I'm so afraid those aren't the people that are at that place. You are there with a great deal of dread and concern. In other words, the warnings of Scripture are working on you. God is speaking to you and you're responding to that. It's the people that have marched away that I'll never talk to because they don't want to talk to a pastor, that's for sure. Those are the people who certainly this text might apply to. I mean, that's the kind of profile we're looking at. One more phrase, for the sake of time is all we have, letter F. I just want to address this last line. It says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man can be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, you've got to take that in context saying that the miraculous signs of Christ are of the devil, will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. You know, there's so much that's made of this little phrase in certain circles, even in Catholic circles, as though there's some kind of forgiveness in the next life. I just want to make this clear. This is a a statement that is often, I mean, it's the kind of statement we find throughout the scripture where it's like the things we'll say, you know, sometimes like you you miss that and you're never going to get it back or, you know, you're not going to get that today or ever. The idea of God being so emphatic with that simply means it's not going to happen. You're not going to be forgiven for this sin that you've committed there. If you're a Pharisee attributing the work of Christ, the miraculous work of Christ to Satan. But when it comes to the age to come, when people read that, as the Catholic Church does, for instance, to see there, there is forgiveness in the next age. You can get things forgiven after you die, which was a moneymaker for them during the Reformation period. Before the Reformation, they could say, we can get you to get your sins forgiven for your uncle, your aunt, your grandparent. What we need to recognize is the Bible says there's only one age of forgiveness, and that's now. For instance, Hebrews 8, there's many others we could look at. But it's appointed on a man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. You get life now. And again, we're talking Hebrews because all these warnings are about get it right with God now. Today, if you'd hear his voice, respond to him. After that, the judgment. So just as it's appointed a man once to die and after that, the judgment, well, so with Christ. He's been offered once to bear the sins of many. That was round one. That was the first appearing. He'll appear a second time. But you know what? There'll be no offer of salvation then. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When the buzzer goes off, it's over. It's done. When people die, it's finished. The only age to get forgiveness in is this one. 
This is the hyperbolist kind of statements that we find sometimes in literary material, even in the Bible, that makes a kind of statement so emphatic that just you need to know there's no getting out of this. You commit this sin and it's over. All right, let me pray for us. God, thanks for this crowd. Thanks for our study. As we get through these various items, I pray that we would not only take the warnings, but the great consolation and even the motivation that we gather from understanding how great it is that Christ for us has not only done things that he didn't have to do, he could have redeemed us, he could have died in our place, he could have risen from the dead, but all of that done with dependence and deference to the Spirit of God to give us a sense when we pray of how merciful and sympathetic you can be to our praying, and not only that, to provide us a great example. May we not fail to pray before big decisions. May we not fail to seek the leadership of the Spirit in our lives or to be filled with the Spirit as we make decisions and go about our work. God, these are important things that we learn, not only from the the instructions of God's Word, but by the example of Christ. So may we be motivated by, by that as well as concerned, as we rightly should be, about our hearts being right with you when we read these uh, these chilling uh, warnings from the book of Hebrews. Thanks for our study tonight. Thanks for this team. Dismiss them now with a great sense of, of just your, your uh, cl- increasing clarity about who you are. Give them that, God, and let them grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.